<laughs> Turn the volume way up. Uh, welcome uh, to the third in this year's uh, speaker series uh, on uh, democracy and Islam. Uh, our speaker today is Fred Lawson, who is um, Frederick A. Rice Professor of Government at Mills College, where he has taught international relations and Middle East politics since 1985. His interests include international relations, international political economy, politics of the Middle East and North Africa, and comparative uh, foreign policy. Uh, he's, he's best known, maybe, as a, at least to me, as uh, a specialist on Syria. Uh, he's somebody who's done a lot of research on Syria. He's written books on Syria. He is now writing, in process of writing, uh, a book on Syrian politics. And in this world of political scientists uh, studying uh, the politics of Muslim-majority countries, there aren't too many people who get to become experts on particular countries because there are so many restrictions put in their way in terms of being able to live in the country and go back and do research and things of that sort. Uh, so Fred is one of the few people in the world uh, who has been able to follow Syrian politics very closely for a long period of time. Uh, he was even uh, a Fulbright lecturer uh, in Syria in the early 1990s, uh, and he was back there as recently as five years or so uh, ago. So his subject today is uh, Syrian uh, politics, so this is why I highlight this, uh, obviously. Uh, welcome, uh, uh, Fred Lawson. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Bill. Wonderful to be here. Recent work on the Islamist movements in the Middle East has finally recognized distinctions among the different Islamist movements that are active in different countries in the region. So we finally have studies that show us that the Islamist movement in Egypt is different from the one in Tunisia, and the Islamist movement in Yemen is different from the one in Jordan in important ways. Therefore, it's finally the case that the notion of an Islamic wave sweeping across the region has been displaced by a more nuanced view with more localized movements that are active in different countries that confront different types, different kinds of political arrangements. But it still remains, it seems to me, to recognize important shifts that take place in the different Islamist movements that are, that are present in any one country over time. The notion of Islamist movements is not monolithic either across different countries nor across different periods of time. And for each of the countries in the Middle East and North Africa, the Islamist movement changes in important ways. There are important waves or stages in the movement as time goes by. Today I want to outline for you a little bit of the changes that have taken place in the Islamist movement in Syria from the time of independence in 1946 up to the present. And I'm going to claim today that there are four distinct stages in the Islamist movement in Syria over these last 60 years or so. The first important stage of the Islamist movement, did the little handout get around? I put no, together, not, not yet. I put together a little, thank you, a little handout of some of the names uh, and, and organizations that uh, I guess I could write on the board. The first important stage of the Islamist movement in Syria coincides with the emergence of a Syrian organization of the Muslim Brothers. And occasionally I will slip and refer to the Muslim Brothers by the Arabic term Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brothers. The Muslim Brothers appear in Syria in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and so the late 40s and early 50s mark this first wave of the Islamist movement in Syria. The second wave coincides with a more radical shift in the Islamist movement in Syria, a more radical shift that takes place in the late 1960s, from 1968 or so on into the early 1970s, and the more radical shift is associated with one prominent thinker, one prominent writer, Saeed Hawa. And Saeed Hawa's writings are an intimate part of this second stage of the Islamist movement. The third stage represents a reassertion of a more liberal orientation to the Islamist movement in Syria, the third stage of the movement takes shape in the late 1980s on into the, excuse me, in the late 1970s 
my notes have a typo, late 1970s on into the early 1980s. And this phase is associated with an organization called the Islamic Front in Syria. And as the Islamic Front in Syria takes shape, the orientation of the movement shifts in a more liberal direction. And finally, the fourth wave of the Islamist movement in Syria coincides with the statements of a number of prominent Islamist figures in the country, especially in the late 1990s, as President Hafez al-Assad was becoming weaker and more isolated from policymaking, and then on into the period after Hafez al-Assad dies and is replaced by his son, Bashar al-Assad. First wave. During the years at the very end of the Second World War, 1944, on into 1945, a cluster of disparate Islamist movements inside Syria coalesces to form a local Muslim Brothers organization. This Muslim Brother organization immediately asserts its affiliation with the Muslim Brothers of Egypt that had been formed in the late 1920s. And there's a little bit of a specialist debate about whether the Muslim Brothers in Egypt actively cultivated and formed, founded the Muslim Brothers of Syria. I'm convinced that the Muslim Brothers of Syria were a separate movement that originated out of local organizations. But soon after it got organized, the Muslim Brothers in Syria did forge a link with the Muslim Brothers in Cairo. The merger of these small Islamist movements into the Muslim Brothers was orchestrated by a prominent Islamist activist in Damascus, Mustafa Asibai. And Mustafa Asibai then was elected to the position of general supervisor in the summer of 1946. So the Muslim Brothers in Syria are present as an organized institution by the summer of 1946. The objective of this organization was to set up an Islamic order, Nizam al-Islam, an Islamic order that would put the principles of the religion into practice. But what the Muslim Brothers meant by the putting the principles of the religion into practice was largely an effort to liberate Syria from French imperial rule. The primary objective was national independence. The primary objective was to push the Europeans out, push the French out, and create a local political order. The Muslim Brothers also announced an objective of carrying out major economic reforms and social reforms, especially in the areas of education and expanding public uh, state support for communities and villages around the country. The Muslim Brotherhood advocated land reform to redistribute land to help poor farmers get by and to decrease the level of exploitation in Syrian society. The Muslim Brothers in the late 1940s also encouraged Muslims and Christians to cooperate with one another to fight against Zionist activities in Palestine. So there was an important foreign policy dimension to the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 1940s, the dimension was to keep the Zionist movement from seizing control of Palestine. Candidates sponsored by the Muslim Brothers campaigned in the parliamentary elections in Syria in 1947. The Muslim Brothers did not exactly form a political party, but they did stand candidates for electoral office. And in the campaign in 1947, the Muslim Brothers actively cooperated with Syria's Liberal Party. The Liberal Party provided the institutional framework for the campaigns, but acknowledged, respected Muslim Brother candidates ran for office under the banner of the Liberal Party. Both the Liberal Party and the Muslim Brothers criticized the Syrian government of the time, led by the established nationalist elite organized as a nationalist bloc. The two parties criticized this nationalist bloc for only carrying out piecemeal reforms after independence and not for pursuing a more coordinated, coherent reform program that the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 1940s referred to as a socialist program. So the Muslim Brotherhood criticized the Syrian government 
for not carrying out a socialist program, but instead just adopting reform measures willy-nilly. The Muslim Brothers then stood firmly opposed to the military leadership that seized control in the country in March of 1948. The Muslim Brothers had no sympathy with the military coup makers, had no uh, interaction with the military coup, uh, with the military government that ruled the country after March of 1949. And in fact, leaders of the Muslim Brothers then accused the new regime led by Colonel Husni al-Zaim for, champion, for championing Kurdish interests. Zaim came from the Kurdish population, and the Muslim Brothers charged that Husni Zaim and the military junta were fostering Kurdish interests at the expense of the common people of the country. So the Muslim Brotherhood appealed to the rest of the ethnic linguistic communities of Syria to resist the military uh, regime on the grounds that the military regime was sectarian and narrow in its orientation. When Husni al-Zaim was overthrown in August of 1949 by a leadership, by a, a group of officers led by Colonel Sami Hanawi, the Muslim Brothers set up a political organization and called this political organization the Islamic Socialist Front. The Islamic Socialist Front that takes shape in the fall of 1949 explicitly calls for land reform, calls for workers' rights, for higher salaries and better working conditions in the country's factories, and calls especially for an end to government corruption especially the government corruption that had led to the drastic defeat against the um, Jewish armed forces in Palestine in 1948. But by 1949-1950, skirmishes between the Muslim brothers on the one hand and the People's Party and the armed forces on the other hand led the Muslim brothers to pretty much withdraw from politics for the rest of the 1950s. And for the rest of the 1950s, then, the Muslim Brothers do not advocate political positions. They carry out various kinds of community programs. They turn their orientation toward education, but are not a major player on the national scale. The Islamist movement in Syria then shifts gears quite dramatically at the end of the 1960s. At the end of the 1960s, a group of younger activists led by Marwan al-Hadid who had been inspired by Egyptian radical Muslim brothers, begins to set the course for the Ikhwan al-Muslimin inside Syria. And this more radical turn in the Islamist movement in Syria accompanied then the, the spread of the writings of Said Hawa. Said Hawa was a major figure, major intellectual, and major political activist as well, who hailed from a family of what all his biographers call a family of modest means in the north-central city of Hama. So not from Damascus, not from Aleppo, but from a smaller town inside Syria. Said Hawa attended the College of Islamic Law at Damascus University. And after he graduated from the university, Said Hawa then became a kind of public religious scholar, an alum, in Aleppo, uh, helping people with religious education, not quite making rulings, but helping to interpret Islamic principles for the general public in the northern city of Aleppo. Say, Said Hawa was also a practicing Sufi. And this turns out to be important in Syrian terms because throughout Syria, the Naqshbandi Sufi order is an influential part of politics, an influential part of social life in many communities. And so by being a member of the Naqshbandiya, Said Hawa ended up having lots of contacts among Syria ulama, gained a kind of credibility and charisma among local populations, and on the whole was able to spread his message, partly through the linkages of the Naqshbandiya religious fraternity throughout the country. Beginning in 1968, sorry, this is exactly the wrong height, sorry. Um, beginning in 1968, Said Hawa published a whole series of important texts, a whole series of books that were centered on an important concept for most Islamist movements, the concept of the unity of God, 
Tawhid, and the importance of thinking of the deity in unitary terms, not thinking about segments of God, and a series of books that highlighted the, the relevance of the message of the prophet for the 20th century. In these books, Sayyid Hawa called on all Muslims, and especially the Muslims of Syria, to engage in struggle, and he did use the word jihad, to engage in jihad against injustice wherever it was to be found. And everyone who read the books understood that Sayyid was calling for jihad against the injustice of the Syrian regime, against the injustices of the Ba'ath Party, and the way that the Ba'ath Party had skewed its political message for the benefit of the military leaders and the party leaders who dominated the country. Sayyid Hawa, in this series of books, also called for the creation of a leading movement to coordinate the effort to bring justice to the country, and called, therefore, for the creation of a party of God, Hezbollah, party of God. And it was Sayyid Hawa, then, as far as I can tell, who originated this term, Hezbollah, and who argued that the Hezbollah would play a key part in organizing Muslims and, in an almost Leninist way, leading, being the vanguard of the revolution, to overturn the unjust order and bring into place a, a more... Uh, uh, just and democratic arrangement. In accordance with the teachings of Said Hawa then, a number of radical activists formed up armed units, armed underground militias, and began preparing and training to attack government facilities across the country. And by the late 1960s, early 1970s then, there were sporadic attacks on police stations, sporadic bombings against power stations of the public electricity company. And so armed militants took up the message of Said Hawa and began to engage not just in jihad in an individual way or nonviolent way, but began to actively attack government installations on the, uh, on the authority of Said Hawa's writings. Despite this more activist shift in mobilizational terms or even in political terms, it's important to see that the economic program that's included in Said Hawa's writings is not particularly radical. The economic program, the objectives that the Muslim Brotherhood claimed to carry out in the late 1960s and early 1970s, derived largely from the ideas of Mustafa Asibai, the original general supervisor of the Muslim Brotherhood. Al-Sibahi had been the mentor of Said Hawa in Damascus and had played a major role in shaping his general ideological outlook. Among the various features of the economic program that Said Hawa advocated was first, uh, uh, an assertion that economic functions, that certain economic functions are absolutely essential for the community and that any economic functions that are vital to keep the community going needed to be regulated by the state, needed to have some sort of central regulation. So there needed to be some kind of planning, there needed to be some kind of administrative arena that would shape economic activities. But second, at the same time, Said Hawa um, uh, argued that individual human beings, individuals, also enjoy certain natural rights. And among the natural rights that individuals enjoy is the right to ownership, the right to property, the right to control over one's own means of livelihood. It's important to see here that Said could have talked about, I guess, private ownership of the means of production. Uh, but Sayyid Hawa did not use that particular term with its obvious Marxian connotations and instead talked repeatedly about how individuals needed to control their own means of livelihood, needed to be responsible for, uh, 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 needed to be responsible for taking care of themselves and of their families. Therefore, third, laws need to be passed, government needs to be present in order to guarantee individual rights that individual rights lie at the heart of Islam, individual rights lie at the heart of human potential, and so one of the major functions of government is to protect and to facilitate private enterprise. Notice, 
despite Saeed Hawa's reputation as a flaming radical, these are principles that most of us, that most liberals would accept as pretty obvious ways to structure society, pretty obvious ways to keep a country going and to promote economic dynamism. In the fall of 1980, then, we're on to the third wave. In the fall of 1980, then, after a series of armed uprisings across the north-central cities of Syria, a group of prominent religious figures initiated discussions with the militant factions to try to put together a broad political movement. It was clear by early 1980 that the armed rebellion was probably not going to succeed, that the armed rebellion was tarnishing the reputation of the Islamist movement as a whole, and so mainstream Islamist figures tried to work, cooperate with the radicals to work out a broader political strategy. And this broad political movement then called itself the Islamic Front in Syria. The Islamic Front in Syria then takes over, if you will, the Muslim Brotherhood and other organizations in the fall of 1980. The Islamic Front in Syria publishes a manifesto that November, and in the manifesto of the Islamic Front of Syria, the manifesto calls for the, full, for the restoration of full rights of citizens. So the objectives of the Islamist movement have now been for all citizens to gain their civic rights, citizens to gain equality before the law, citizens to gain the right to express their opinions freely, citizens to be able to organize and uh, what the framers of the US Constitution might call freedom of association. And the Muslim Brotherhood calls for all people of Syria to enjoy these civic rights, including the country's various minority groups. So including the Christians, including people who are uh, sometimes considered not Christians nor Muslims, uh, like the Alawis, and so on. The Islamic Front in Syria also demanded that the regime adhere to the terms of the 1973 Constitution. So the Islamist movement is a fully constitutional movement uh, by 1980, um, by the early 1980s. And interestingly, the manifesto of the Islamic Front only mentions Islamic law just in passing, just on a couple of little occasions. Islamic law, Sharia, does not lie anywhere near the heart of the Islamic Front's program. The Islamic Front's program is to reestablish the Constitution and to re-energize uh, the Syrian population to take an active part in politics. The Islamic Front's economic program, it seems to me, has four important features. First of all, the Islamic Front in Syria asserts, once again, that individuals have a fundamental right to own property. And the Islamic Front in Syria urges the government, urges state agencies to play an active role in encouraging private property, to help private entrepreneurs, to help private property be protected and grow. Um, the Islamic Front in Syria urges the government to provide subsidies and low-interest loans to private enterprise across the country, to give private entrepreneurs access to credit, and especially to break up the large-scale state farms and to replace the state farms with private uh, farms, with uh, uh, local-level farms, perhaps run by families, perhaps run by cooperatives, but at least not orchestrated on a national level. Second, the Islamic Front in Syria in the early 1980s proposes that workers in the public sector factories should be given a share of the ownership of those factories along with the state so that public sector enterprises not be owned only by the government anymore, but that a more cooperative framework be set up, that workers be given a share in the workplace where they were employed. Third, the Islamic Front in Syria demands that working conditions be improved, both in the public sector and in the private sector, that new kinds of benefits and higher salaries be paid across the board. And fourth, the Islamic Front in Syria proposes that government spending 
be distributed across the country according to the needs of particular regions so that government spending not be uh, carried out according to sectarian considerations or not be carried out according to partisan considerations, party considerations, but instead that each country that needs a new hospital be given one, each country that needs a new agricultural, uh, a new grain silo be given one, rather than having party officials or military officers determine where these investments be made. Following the government's violent suppression of a revolt in the north-central city of Hama in February of 1982, the Islamic Front then joins together with a wide range of other political organizations, all opposed to the Ba'athi regime, and the Islamic Front transforms itself into the National Alliance for the Liberation of Syria. It does seem to me as if the National Alliance for the Liberation of Syria is nothing but a small revision of the Islamic Front. If we look at the program of the National Alliance for the Liberation of Syria, we discover that the program is pretty sketchy, that it adopts many parts of the Islamic Front's program. Uh, the main difference between the two is that the National Alliance for the Liberation of Syria plays more, pays more attention to reviving parliament and to ending the monopoly that the Ba'ath Party has on Syrian politics. And the National Alliance includes a number of other organizations besides the Muslim Brotherhood. It includes Nasserist organizations and the Arab Socialist Movement of the Venerable Akram al-Harani and a whole, a whole range of other political parties. So perhaps we're not surprised that the National Alliance for the Liberation of Syria calls for a kind of umbrella movement that will, uh, a rainbow coalition that will involve all kinds of political organizations. <clears throat> there was in the early 1980s a bit of dissent against this shift in a more moderate liberal direction and dissident activists inside the Muslim Brothers gravitated toward a particular radical leader, Adnan Ukla, and so Adnan Ukla carries on the more violent activist radical tradition of the 1960s Ikhwan al-Muslimin, uh, but the political program that Agnan Okla and his followers pursue seems unclear to me. Uh, the radicals at this moment do champion the establishment of, is of an Islamic state, but it's not at all clear what that Islamic state would consist of. Uh, the Islamic Revolution was just taking place in Iran, pretty much next door, so perhaps these guys expected that something along the lines of the Iranian model would take shape in Syria. We just don't quite know because the program of the radicals remains pretty vague. Fourth wave. By the early 1990s, the Ba'athi regime itself in Syria started to make overtures to prominent figures inside the Islamist movement. And the Muslim Brotherhood responded to these overtures by demanding a release of political prisoners, by demanding an end to martial law, and especially the Muslim Brotherhood began to call for the government to respect human rights and political pluralism. And this call for political pluralism becomes a key part of the Muslim Brotherhood's program during the 1990s. A kind of convergence on, uh, oh, and the Muslim Brotherhood also urges that all Syrians unify, um, uh, the secular Syrians, uh, the government, the Islamist movement, everyone come together in the face of the ongoing conflict with Israel. So once again, foreign policy lies at the heart of the program of the Islamist movement in the 1990s. And a kind of convergence on these issues of pluralism and carrying out the conflict with Israel sets the stage for the return to Syria of the exiled leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, Sheikh Abdel Fattah Abu Ghudda, in December of 1995. But when Abu Ghudda comes back to the country, Abu Ghudda explicitly promises the government that he will not engage in political activities. He goes not quite into seclusion, but he goes into private life. 
in the city of Aleppo in the north and begins being a private advisor and a private teacher of Islamic law in Aleppo. In response to the return of Abu Ghuddah to Syria, what's left of the radical wing of the Muslim Brothers that are pretty much based in London by this time elect Ali Sadr al-Din al-Bayanuni to be general supervisor of the Muslim Brotherhood and al-Bayanuni then ends up being the only, the undisputed leader of the Muslim Brotherhood after Abu Ghuddah dies in February of 1997. About the time Abu Ghuddah leaves the scene, the Secretary General of the Islamic Action Front in Jordan signs an important working paper with the Ba'athi government in Damascus. And this agreement between the Muslim, Brotherhoods, Muslim Brothers of Jordan and the Syrian government calls for a reconciliation between Arabism, and that's the Syrian government part, and Islam. That's the Muslim Brotherhood part. This joint working paper calls for combined resistance to Israeli hegemony in the Middle East. It calls for renewed commitment to unity among all of the Arab countries. And for our purposes, most interestingly, this joint working statement calls, uh, proposes that the Muslim Brotherhood work together with the Syrian authorities to increase the level of popular participation in policymaking in both Jordan and Syria. Toward the end of the decade of the 1990s, the Muslim Brothers leaders in Syria express greater and greater appreciation of the virtues of liberal democracy. And whatever seeds there were of the Muslim Brothers of Syria being a liberal reform movement really begin to blossom at the end of the 1990s. In August of 1999, the organization issues a communique that calls on the government of Damascus, quote, to renounce autocracy and opt for democracy, freedom, and political pluralism as part of reform. So the language and the imagery of the Islamist movement in Syria in the late 1990s takes on all of the terms and concepts of liberal democracy. Shortly after the death of President Hafez al-Assad, the Muslim Brothers release a statement that urges Syria's new leaders, new leader, President Bashar al-Assad, to carry out measures that would promote what they call general national unity within a framework of political pluralism and public freedoms. At about the same time, General Super, Supervisor al-Bayanuni told reporters that the Ikhwan al-Muslimin of Syria did not even have to be permitted to organize openly inside Syria. It would be enough, his words, to have some sort of formula that would allow the Muslim Brothers to express its views on public issues. In April of 2005, the Muslim Brothers issue another communique that demands free and fair elections and an end to martial law in Syria. And the very last point I'll make in our historical story, in January of 2006, the Muslim Brothers joined forces with former Vice President Abdul Halim Khadam in a kind of umbrella um, opposition organization based in Paris to demand the end of Ba'ath Party rule in Syria and the replacement of the Ba'ath Party by a liberal democratic regime. What the Muslim Brothers explicitly demand in their terms is the creation of a modern state, that is, a contractual state based on citizenship, the rule of law, representation, pluralism, and the peaceful transfer of power. As you can imagine, Generations of scholars have tried to explain the various programs and the trajectory of the Islamist movement inside Syria. The most influential line of argument that explains the shifts that I've outlined for us today explains these shifts in terms of the class interests of the social forces that support the Islamist movement inside Syria. What are the primary, what's the primary constituency of this movement? How does the party's program reflect the political interests of these particular social forces? Thus, Hanabatatu, the 
dean of uh, studies of Syrian politics, calls the Islamic Front Manifesto, quote, consonant with the outlook and interests of the urban Sunni trading and manufacturing middle and lower middle classes. So for Hanabatatu and for many authors in this tradition, including it must be said myself uh, in an earlier incarnation, the Islamist movement in Syria directly reflects the interests of small-scale private enterprise, of entrepreneurs and small-scale merchants and manufacturers in Syria's urban districts. In fact, Batatu claims, uh, makes the larger claim, that the Muslim brothers in Syria acted as, quote, the forward arm of the endangered urban traders from the mid-1960s on through the mid-1980s. On this view, then, we should be able to trace out the shifts in the program of the Muslim Brotherhood in terms of the interests of Syria's petite bourgeoisie under the circumstances that were present at some particular time. For instance, the concern for protecting private property that we see reflected in Said Hawa's writings do seem to express an interest held by the small urban bourgeoisie, uh, urban petite bourgeoisie, who confronted growing state control and growing state intervention in the Syrian economy after 1965, as Ba'athi socialism really begins to take hold and really begins to become consolidated. Similarly, we might say that the program of the Islamic Front that calls for greater government support for small-scale enterprises and private sector farmers might well reflect the government's efforts to um, uh, sorry, might well reflect the government's efforts to prop up state-controlled enterprises in the late 1970s and 1980s, and maybe also reflects the interest of small-scale merchants as they are gradually overwhelmed by larger-scale commercial enterprises that begin to import a flood of products into Syria by the late 1970s. So this isn't a bad argument. Helps us, helps us uh, understand a lot about the general shape of the Muslim brothers in Syria. Certainly helps us point out important differences between the Muslim brothers of Syria, for instance, and the Muslim brothers of Egypt, who have a very different broad orientation and have a very different social foundation class uh, uh, constituency. But this perspective, it does seem to me, has a difficult time accounting for the fact for instance, that the National Alliance tends to abandon large parts of the economic program that were present in the Islamic Front's charter. Um, the the uh, general thrust of the Islamist movement's program is uh, accounted for, but not some of the important changes. I'm going to move ahead. More adequate explanation, it seems to me, uh, would see the shifts that I've outlined as efforts by subordinate forces inside Syria to express their opposition against the government and against the regime in using the broad terms or within the broad terms that are set by the regime. It seems to me that the Islamist movement in Syria in an almost a direct way reflects the kinds of language and reflects the kind of program that the regime itself was advocating at the time. So for instance, in the late 1960s on into the early 1970s, Ba'athi socialism itself called, uh, emphasized a broadly corporatist vision for Syrian society, a broadly collective vision in which the country would maintain unity and march together toward one and goal, Ba'athi socialism of the late 1960s and early 70s uses a rhetoric of struggle and a rhetoric of popular march forward into the future. The government sponsors vanguard organizations among students and women and workers, much like the kind of vanguard organization that Saeed Hawa was uh, calling for. Uh, the government in the late 1970s uh, excuse me, in the late 1960s and early 70s, uh, puts in place a policy of creating a large and dynamic public sector in which central regulation and state planning 
plays the key role in orchestrating economic growth. All of those features, I think, find a reflection in the program of the Islamist movement during its radical phase of the late 1960s and early 1970s. By contrast, by the late 1970s, the Syrian government itself makes a shift and makes a shift in the direction of a rhetoric of competition and efficiency. So the highest goal is no longer establishing the broad growth of the Syrian economy, but instead of creating efficient growth and using resources as efficiently as possible through the operation of a competitive market. The radical vanguard organizations of the late 1960s were largely abandoned by the late 1970s, and the party itself tried to rationalize these vanguard organizations to bring them more in line with government policy and to make sure, for instance, that the students' organization actually followed the orders of the government rather than going off in directions of its own. And by the late 1970s, the government itself had reintroduced private capital into trade, was encouraging private investment to come into the country, and especially in construction and um, uh, uh, small-scale um, small manufactured goods, economic liberalization was taking off, in short. In Syria, at least, the dominant social forces largely have largely established the terms of political debate and the terms whereby popular mobilization takes place inside Syria, even for groups as distant from the regime as the Islamist movement and as the Muslim Brothers. Opposition programs, therefore, do not simply articulate the specific class interests of any particular groups in Syrian society, but instead, even the Muslim Brothers have incorporated key, figure, key features of the hegemonic ideology that's present in the country at the time. As Richard Ashcraft, my teacher at UCLA, remarked concerning the political context in which Thomas Hobbes formulated his political philosophy, quote, if we are to understand what any set of political thinkers is saying, it is extremely important to understand what their opponents are saying. Without Filmer and Hobbes, no Locke. Without Hegel and Adam Smith, no Marx. We might well add, in the case of Syria, without the radical bath of the mid-1960s, no Said Hawa, and without the halting liberalization of Hafez al-Assad in the mid-1970s, no Islamic Front. to take some questions. Yes, sir. Uh, can you give us some idea of how big the group is? Are we talking about dozens of people, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, the various stages? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it looks to me as if by the, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, there might have been high tens of thousands, perhaps low hundreds of thousands of members of the Muslim Brothers in Syria. The Muslim Brothers carried out large demonstrations. They, they protested not only American policy, but also protested occasionally in the streets of the capital in large enough numbers that U.S. diplomatic correspondence uh, presents large number of people in the streets. Um, the movement was probably also tens of thousands of people in the late 1970s and early 1980s, but after the movement is crushed by the Syrian armed forces, the movement inside Syria drops to very, very few numbers indeed, small enough that it's almost hard to find anyone at all. What happens, as many of you in the room may know, what happens is there's an exile uh, wing of the Muslim Brothers of Syria that takes up residence in uh, largely in Germany, but also in London as well. So there might be a couple of hundred Muslim uh, brother activists uh, outside the country, but inside the country very, very few indeed. And it has been, uh, sorry, the, the date escapes me, but it's been since 1978 or so, 77, 78, it has been not only illegal, 
but a punishable by death offense to be a member of the Muslim Brothers in Syria. And one of the demands I should have mentioned is the Muslim Brothers, of course, are calling for a repeal of that law uh, so that once again they can operate openly inside the country. But since 1982, the number of Muslim Brothers active members inside Syria has been very small indeed. Um, yes, please. Oh, that's a great question. There you go. That's the dissertation we're waiting for. So I trust that you will go off and do that dissertation. Now, can that dissertation actually be done? I don't know. I don't know if it can be done or not. Uh, there, there would be a tiny chance that by reading the newspapers carefully, or maybe, oh, gee, I don't know how that could be done. can't think how to do that. The dominant view, and as I said, there's, a, there's an important element of truth to it. The dominant view is that certain constituents, certain very broad constituencies provide the membership, provide the leadership for the organization. But what we don't have for Syria that the Egyptian scholars do have, thanks to the sort of efficiency, believe it or not, thanks to the efficiency of the Egyptian police and, and the Egyptian security services, we don't have detailed records of who was arrested. We don't have interviews with people arrested. So whereas Egyptian scholars have made a major contribution to our understanding of Islamist movements by going through carefully interviewing people in prison and going through the arrest records, there's nothing that I know of like that for Syria, so I wouldn't know uh, how to answer that question, but it's absolutely vital. And someday, the next generation, you all, will stop talking about the Muslim Brothers only in terms of ideology and platform, and will talk about the Syrian Muslim Brothers in those ways. Whatever was the basis of support and the activists in Hama certainly did leave Hama and spread in different directions. And I think that on the one hand, militants do end up in the much larger, much more cosmopolitan city to the north of Aleppo. But on the other hand, the revulsion against the radical movement is pretty strong and pretty widespread in Syria after 1982. And it takes a while for anyone to be sympathetic for the Muslim Brothers uh, in Aleppo. When I, when I was there, at the risk of, sort of saying something anecdotal, uh, when I was in Aleppo in 1992-93, uh, almost even people I got to know pretty well expressed no sympathy at all with the Muslim Brothers, thought that the Muslim Brothers had harmed the cause of Islam, thought that they had set things back by forcing the government's hand, thought that, that they had uh, uh, tarnished the image of Islam, and so on. But what there is in Aleppo is another kind of grassroots movement, another kind of grassroots movement that is uh, an Islamist movement that is oriented toward um, family life and education and personal, uh, personal um, piety of one kind or another. And so the authorities in Aleppo are quite worried about these libraries and study groups and small little grassroots cells that are taking shape in Aleppo. There's a wonderful Belgian scholar who's just spent two years in uh, Aleppo doing research on this topic, and he's gradually publishing uh, uh, things on this topic, and there will be a book published uh, by Saki Books in London and the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies at University of London sometime early next year that has some of the original results of his work. And this work shows, I think, that, that these community organizations are mobilizing a little more actively, becoming a little more 
a little closer to a political activism. So maybe things are taking shape again, and perhaps, as the Marxists say, it's no accident that this is taking shape in the context of growing numbers of refugees. Uh, the Iraqi refugees are certainly putting a strain on social services, certainly making, it, making the cost of living higher and higher in Syrian cities, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if the Islamist uh, movement, if Islamist uh, organizers are benefiting from the general economic strain that's resulting from the uh, Iraqis showing up, Iraqi uh, refugees showing up. Pretend their leadership to be strictly followers of the Sharia, and they do not look upon Sufi different schools of Tariqat, so to speak, that are not Sunni, Qadiri. The said Hawahi, you mentioned that he was a practicing Sufi. Is it the situation in Syria unique? In other cases, this Ikhwan and Muslimin branches, they are not, they do not reconcile their differences with the Sufi order. Why did it happen in Syria that he, at the same time, he was a, a member of the a leader of the the Muslim group, and at the same time, he was a practicing? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important nuance that we absolutely need to pay attention to. My understanding of the Egyptian Muslim brothers would be that the Egyptian Muslim brothers would not be very tolerant of Sufi practices, would try to reform Sufi practices, would, would try to uh, present a more modern face of Islam in the sense of kind of 1920s Islamic modernism, and therefore would, uh, would find it extremely odd even... Um, uh, debilitating to forge an, uh, a link with Sufi leaders or Sufi organizations. But in Syria, uh, the, the, the accident perhaps, the, 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 <laughs> the circumstance that one of the leading figures uh, and, uh, was tied in to this Sufi network uh, played a crucial role in mobilizing the local population. Uh, I'm not sure I know how to answer the question of why in Syria that happened, but, but those kinds of linkages to what makes action possible is what explains a lot of why the movement is stronger, why Islamist movements are stronger in some countries rather than others. In Iran, perhaps, it's common knowledge, everyone in the room may know, that in Iran, of course, the Islamist movement has strong linkages with another kind of organization, not Sufis, but with the local level community preachers in the, uh, in the poorer quarters, the petit bourgeois quarters of the cities. And so finding that connection between these principles and programs and whatever linkage, whatever uh, social organization is present in each country is the vital, is vital question to ask. And I think we need detailed studies of almost all the countries in the region. That's a really good question. Um, this, this combined democratic movement of Syrian, of critics of the Syrian regime that's, that's taking place, uh, that's gravitating toward Paris and around Abdel Halim Khadam really is a group of very odd bedfellows. It's a group of, of parties and organizations that don't have much in common. It's, uh, the, all they really have in common is a desire to overturn the um, Ba'ath Party regime, and they're proposing that a liberal democratic system with free voting, I don't know if they've gone as far as to think of proportional representation, but of some institutional mechanisms for parties to build coalitions inside parliament, that that's the preferred way to have the, the next uh, regime in Syria. Now, so what is Islamic about that? Um, tempted to say maybe not much, but on the other hand, my guess is that an important reason to study 
the Syrian Muslim Brothers is that the Syrian Muslim Brothers have certainly worked out a way to reconcile Islamic political thought and Islamic political principles with a different kind of institutional arrangement from the way that Khomeini put together the Islamic Republic uh, uh, and the Viliati Faqif in Iran. And so as a different kind of experiment, as a different kind of way that an Islamic, uh, an Islamist political order might take shape, Syria might represent uh, a real different model. It, it certainly won't be the kind of ruthlessly secular liberal democracy that Turkey has, but um, uh, maybe, maybe it's something similar to what's going on in Tunisia. Well, once again, I think the, the different countries and, uh, and I was learning more than I uh, ever expected to learn about Indonesia uh, yesterday, and so uh, there, there's a bunch of different models, and we may have different Islamist movements that point in the direction of different political forms of political organization, and that reinforce those, that Islam will, is malleable and will adapt to different kind of institutional arrangements. That's a wonderful question, uh, and and I need to think a lot more about this growing tension that it, that is taking place between Syria and Saudi Arabia. One thing to say is that in the 1950s, when the Syrian Muslim Brothers stopped playing an active role in politics and began orienting more toward community service organizations, the politically active Muslim Brothers of Syria went to Saudi Arabia into exile. So there's a long link between the Saudi government and the, old, the first wave of the Syrian Muslim Brothers. The Saudis seem to have no connection or no interest in the radical wave of the late 1960s, but there, is, there would be means of influence. There would be connections and, and mutual uh, alliances between some leading figures of the Syrian Muslim Brothers and the Saudis. Uh, but let's see if I can articulate the reasons why. For some reason, it, it seems unlikely to me that the Mubahideen kind of Islamist movement that's present in Saudi Arabia would have much appeal to Syrian Muslim brothers. I mean, uh, I'd have to think about why that might be. But the, they certainly grow out of different, the two movements grow out of different traditions. They emphasize different things. Uh, the Saudis are clearly quite worried about Shi'i political activism in Lebanon and think that the Syrian government is somehow tolerating Shi'i activism in Lebanon, but fighting against Shi'is in Lebanon, uh, I, can't, I can't put together a connection between this, uh, that and the Saudi government helping to encourage or maybe uh, uh, giving some kind of support to Islamist movements inside Syria. One thing that we see is, I'm sorry, I know I'm rambling, one thing we see is after the second Gulf War in 1991-92, to show their appreciation for Syria joining in the fight to throw Iraq out of Kuwait, Kuwaiti, the Kuwaiti government and the Saudi government sent money to Syria to build wonderful new mosques and wonderful new Islamic schools uh, inside Syria. So there has been a kind of official contribution to Islam as a practicing religion from Saudi Arabia to Syria. Um, that's about all I could say. Thanks. Uh, Yeah. 
the opposite of going radical. Interesting comments, both. Um, it could well be that uh, what political scientists sometimes call the opportunity structures in Syria and Egypt help to account for a lot of this difference and that, and that the relative... But what I'm standing here trying to think of is whether I do think that the political opportunity structure in Egypt is a little more open to the Islamist movement. The Egyptian authorities have cracked down pretty hard. The Islamist, uh, the authorities in Egypt have made sure to, to not allow the Muslim brothers to have a political party and so on. So there's a little bit of variation between the two countries, but in both cases, uh, the opportunities for really participating, the opportunities for running in elections and so on are severely constrained. Um, I'm sorry, I talked myself out of the first part of your question. Please remind me. Threat. Thank you. Uh, you know, I guess I think that after 1982, the Islamist movement in Syria poses very, very little threat to the Syrian government and still poses very, very little threat. I mean, I'd be willing to say that the whole reason that Abu Ghadah is allowed back into the country in 1995 is that the Syrian government realizes that he can no longer, the Muslim Brothers can no longer mobilize much popular support, and so there's not much of a danger to allowing the Muslim Brothers to uh, re-enter Syria and, and perhaps to uh, carry out some of their um, teaching and perhaps do even a little bit of their publishing inside Syria instead of having to do it in Germany. So I don't think there is much threat. Probably. Probably right. Yes. Uh, it's not clear to me, though, that the, that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt has been as articulate and has been as um, explicit about, its, uh, about it being proponents of liberal democracy as we see in the Syrian case. I mean, I, th I think the Egyptian Muslim Brothers still have a sense of an almost um, Nasserist objective. Right? I mean, the, the, the Muslim brothers of Egypt are still proposing uh, not so much free and fair elections as an ultimate endpoint, but instead a, a more corporatist kind of political system, a political system where um, there, there is some direction from the top, uh, uh, an economic order that's a little more redistributive rather than market-oriented. So uh, again, perhaps consonant with my general approach, I would think that the Egyptian Muslim brothers are reflecting some of the legacy of the Arab socialist regime in Egypt uh, that is different and not quite as uh, hierarchical and, and uh, uh, interventionist as, as it is in Syria. Please, last. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. I probably should have been clearer about that. In Syria, the Muslim Brotherhood is entirely Sunni um, and is entirely Sunni in its basis of support and its political program and so on. And it's not completely clear at least to me, how the Muslim brothers in Syria would, incor would incorporate the various heterodox communities in Syria into this new political order. I mean, I guess, they would, I guess the brothers would accept the Alawis and the Ismailis and the, other the Druze, the other heterodox groups, on the basis of citizenship and allow them to vote and allow them to participate and so on. But the Muslim brothers, uh, I'm not sure, would recognize... Shi'is, there are no Shi'i members of the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, and in some respects, the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, Muslim Brothers in Syria, are fighting against a regime that in some ways claims to be Shi'i. This is a longish story, 
but the Ba'ath government finally got a ruling from the Lebanese uh, scholar Musa Sadr that Alawis are Shi'is. And so the Alawi community, that's in sectarian terms the dominant uh, party in uh, the dominant uh, group in Syria, uh, is technically Shi'i. So the Muslim brothers are struggling against an exploitative, narrowly sectarian kind of Shi'i regime in Syria. Any questions? Thank you all very much.